0: You turn with me to uh, the passage that's printed in your bulletins on page 8. I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. We've been walking through a series together as a church uh, in the book of Ephesians, and we've been stuck on these passages uh, from verses 21 through 33 as a mini-series within the, within the series as a whole. Read with me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 33, I'm going to be focusing on verse 21, and then we're going to skip to verses 31 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And this is God's word. We're about halfway past this uh, mini-series on marriage. And we said that in verse 31, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That word united, to be united is to cleave. To cleave is to say that I love you and I'm committed to love you. I'm choosing to bind myself completely to you emotionally, financially, physically. I'm choosing to make this promise legal. I'm legally bound. It's a covenant. A covenant means that you're legally bound. It doesn't matter how you feel. That's what that means. It doesn't matter how you feel about that person in the long haul or in any given moment. Because it's based on a promise, a promise that's been sealed through ritual, and a promise that'll be lived out through sacrifice and submission and surrender, based on a character of grace. And because marriage is given to us by God, when you enter into it, you can't go into marriage on your own terms. You need to understand the rules, you need to understand the regulations, what keeps a marriage healthy from the actual person, the actual creator of the institution. It's because, uh, and that's because uh, though the fruits of marriage are visible, that means that you're going to see good fruit when you submit to the rules and you're going to see bad fruit when you violate the rules. The foundation of marriage is bound and it's built and provided by God. And so that means you need to look at the word. And that's why we are looking at the word. You need to look at the word of God to understand it. What is the foundation of marriage? That's what we're going to cover today. Because you're never going to get marriage. You're never going to get the benefits of marriage. You're never going to get the bed. Why do we do this? And not just to marriage couples. Why do we preach this as a whole congregation? Because every relationship, every friendship begins... With some level of promise. And when that promise gets legally binding, that's marriage. We talked about that. This whole series started with marriage as friendship. What's the foundation of marriage? Because you're never gonna get marriage. You're never gonna get the benefits of marriage. You're never gonna understand truly what marriage is until you first see that it's covenantal. You're bound to each other. Now, today in our world, we hate laws. We hate good laws, we hate ba- bad laws. We we don't like to be bound to things, but we need these things, and that's why we see that every covenant has a structure to it. Uh, the covenant of marriage defines your relationship to another person. Any covenant does that. You know, if you're a citizen, you're going to follow the laws of a particular country of citizenship. That's going to define the relationship between you and that country. When you get a mortgage, when you take on a mortgage, that mortgage contract defines the relationship between you and the institution granting you the loan, right? And this is why marriages always begin with specific elements uh, that are bound in a wedding, right? Um, It's because when you take away the conventions of a modern wedding, In the end, it's the establishment, it's the ratification of a covenant. What's the structure of this covenant? What does that mean for us? What are the implications of that covenant, that commitment? And where do you get the power to live that committed life? What's the structure of that covenant? What does that mean for us? What are the implications in our lives? How does that shape us? And as a result, you know, at the, end, at the end of the day, where's the power that you can get to live that, with that kind of commitment in your life? First, what's the structure? First, uh, you're going to see that a st- uh, any covenant, any contract has sections. You see that in a lease agreement, a mortgage agreement. You see that anywhere. Any type of major contract where two parties are bound. And so the first thing you see is that these two parties are introduced right? In a lease agreement, you have the lessee, that's you, you're the one that's leasing the apartment, right? And then you have the lessor, which is the bank, that's the, that's your landlord. In the Old Testament, you had God and you had man. God is the king, man is the vice king. God didn't place man as the king to rule over the world, he placed man as the vice king who would represent him to subdue the earth and rule the world right? And that's why God says over and over in any establishment of a covenant throughout the Old Testament, especially, and you see this explicitly in the Ten Commandments, he begins and he says, I am the Lord your God. He's introducing the two parties. What did he do? I rescued you from Egypt, the land of slavery. That's what he says. And Paul says, our marriages are much like the relationship between God and man, between Christ and his church, and that's why you have the groom and the bride. The parties are introduced. Secondly, you have stipulations. These are the duties. These are the obligations. These are the rules. This is what defines the relationship between these two parties, and you see that in the terms of a contract, and so if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you have in Exodus the Ten Commandments what each side will promise to uphold, that's going to define the relationship between God and man. These are legally bound duties. Thirdly, you have then the blessings if you obey and then the curses if you disobey. If you obey, this is what will happen to you. If you disobey, this is what will happen to you. A lot of the, I'm convinced that a lot of us who don't really fully understand the Old Testament and we walk through especially those covenantal aspects of the Old Testament. You see it in Deuteronomy, you see it in Exodus, and you say, wow, God seems like a very angry God. And you're, you're really taking those portions where God's saying, hey, this is what's going to happen to you if you disobey. And he's, it's not, what he's not saying is automatically if you disobey right now, a curse is going to come down on you. What he's saying is you were designed to live a certain way. I'm your creator. You're designed to live a certain way. And if you violate the laws that govern the way you were designed, you will live a cursed life. It's like putting the wrong kind of fuel into your car. It's like disobeying... The orders of your doctor who tells you, listen, you have to live a certain way or else your body is going to corrode and destruct. That's basically what he's saying. There will be curses. And if you obey, there are blessings. That's what he's saying because you're living in accordance with your design, right? Fourthly, you have the vows. You ratify these vows through a ceremony. In the Old Testament, what you would do is to ratify uh, these vows – you would make these promises, you would take these animals, you would split them in half from head to toe. It's a grisly process. You would split them apart, lay them down on the side of a road, and you would recite these vows as you walk through in between the pieces. From head to toe, these animals are split. There's blood everywhere. And you walk between these pieces, and mainly what you're saying is, it's the same thing as saying, if I break the vow, if I break my promise, if I break these stipulations, if I break the duties and the obligations and the rules and the regulations that have bound me in my commitment to you, may I be like these torn pieces. May I be torn apart. May my life fall apart like the torn pieces of this animal. May I be torn apart, torn asunder. That's the meaning of the rings, you see. Because what you're saying is, I am forever bound to you. No matter what happens, no matter how I feel, I am forever bound to you. It's why a mere promise is not enough. You have to make you make these promises in public. You are held accountable to these promises. Because traditional societies, unlike modern society today, understood the power of a promise. Today, it's why people don't like to make promises anymore. They think they're doing themselves a service. They think they're doing you you a service because they say, hey, I don't want to make a promise to you unless I know I can keep it. But they think you're doing you a favor and actually they're living a very selfish life because what they're saying is, I don't want to be held accountable to something that actually defines the relationship between you and me. You need promises. Promises define relationship. And a covenant, covenant, requires great commitment, the greatest, great discipline, the greatest, great service. The Bible never looks at these relationships and forces you to to just want and crave and need and look on the inside in a selfish manner. You know, what do I get out of this relationship? What am I currently getting out of this? Never does that. The Bible never looks at, at marriage or a friendship or your relationship to your church the bible nowhere in the bible will you ever say will you ever see the, the bible say well, you should be looking for what you get out of it but outwardly always for the other person always sacrificially always when someone makes a verbal promise to you single friends when someone makes a verbal promise to you so that you can come together and be physically intimate without the covenant binding legal nature of a marriage what they're really saying is to get what I want from you, I don't need to be legally bound, you see. Not to get what I want from you. That kind of love is not real. That kind of love is not subjective. It's is subjective. Not according to the Bible, it's not real. Because that kind of love is only looking inside for what they want. That kind of love only takes. It's never thinking for the other person. It sounds like it. But in ancient times, actually for the past 2,000 years, traditional societies have always talked about the legally binding nature of a marriage. Wedding vows are covenantal. For a Christian, your feelings of love for another person Your desire to share everything that you have and everything that you are forever, that's already implicit. It's implicit in your explication, your explicit nature in the commitment that you make. A Christian vow says this, I'm committed to love you. Not that I feel love for you, I'm committed to love you. I'm committed to be faithful to you. I'm committed to cherish you, nurture you, cleanse you, feed you, no matter how I feel about you forever and ever until death do us part. A biblical marriage says, I'm going to surrender certain desires. I'm going to surrender certain cravings. I'm going to surrender certain freedoms. It's very counterintuitive because we live in a society that says, pursue what you want, go with your heart. Today's society says you got to go for you got to think for you. Biblical Mary says I'm going to surrender all the things that makes me feel alive, all the things that make me t- t- to satisfy my cravings, all my desires. I'm going to surrender the times when I don't want to be faithful because I have a foundational love that is forever, no matter what. What they're saying is I'm going to give up my options, I'm going to give up my potential, I'm going to give up my freedom. Because my true option, my true potential, my true freedom can best be realized and demonstrated and experienced through you. That means you're gonna get hurt. That means you're gonna be lonely at times. This is tough, isn't it? That means you're gonna be broken at times. That means you're gonna feel taken advantage of at times. But if you don't commit in that way and back it up with your life and you start to protect yourself so that you never get hurt, you're never taken advantage of, you're never broken, your heart will become hard and impenetrable. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to experience ultimate pain, the ultimate pain of alienation, the ultimate pain of isolation, the ultimate pain of loneliness. A selfish life The only end to a selfish life is a selfish ending, aloneness. That's what you're going to get. Love is covenantal. You're made to be in communion, to be in community and union with another person. You're made for this. God himself, by nature, three persons in one. You're made for this. You are made in his image. You were made for this. You were designed for this. That's the structure of covenant. Okay? Number two, what's the meaning of it? What does that mean for us? Well, marriage is something that's given to us. It's not something that's invented by man. It's given to us. And it's not just given to Christians, it's given to all people. So, what does it mean? For a Christian, what it means is marriage is permanent and it's exclusive. It's permanent, meaning once. You make that decision. Once you make that commitment, you cannot change your mind. There are very few provisions. There are provisions, but there are very few provisions that allow for the breaking of that covenant. And when you break that covenant, it's going to feel destructive. You will live that destruction out for quite a while. It's designed to do that. It's permanent. There are only few provisions that allow for the breakage of a covenant. Number two, it's exclusive. You can't switch partners when you feel like it. You can't walk away. It's an inescapable relationship that's very exclusive. So a Christian view of marriage goes against every trend in society, essentially, that says you don't have to have discipline. You fall into it. You don't have to have discipline. You don't have to have submission. You don't have to be uh, obligate yourself. You don't have to be responsible. Now, it doesn't mean that there are no feelings, What we're saying is that the commitment will always be greater than your feelings. Your feelings will always trail after your commitment. If you feel great, great love to the point where your heart explodes, your commitment will always be greater. You're committed to that. And your feelings will eventually grow into that. That's what happens. You're bound permanently and exclusively. That means no matter how much you fight, No matter how much you disagree, marriage will be the most stable and grounded relationship in your life, your marriage. You know, when I became a pastor, and if you know my story, I didn't want to be a pastor, not for a long time. Um, When I became a pastor, for the first time in my life, I was bound to people who were basically not really my friends. Uh, No other job in the world is like that, no other job. Uh, doctors, lawyers, they have to tend to people that they don't necessarily like, but uh, they don't have to love those people, right? When I became a pastor, all of a sudden I became friends with people that I wouldn't ordinarily choose. I wouldn't ordinarily be friends with. As a pastor, you don't choose your congregation. You're called to your congregation. So that means that even if you don't Even if you wouldn't normally have been friends with that person, when that person is in the hospital, you go visit them. Even if you don't particularly like a person per se, right? When that person's marriage is is in jeopardy, you're going to go there. You're going to want to be a part of that. You're going to be a part of that discussion. Even if you don't particularly enjoy being with that person up front, when there's an emergency, you're going to set up time with them to meet with them. That's what it is. Now, <clears throat> what that means is there's tremendous investment from a pastor into his people. And as I found, my, found myself investing in people, this is what happened. Before, I invested. Part of the reason I was investing was because it was partly a job. It didn't mean that I hate it, right? It just took a lot of work. I had to pour my heart into it. it was, I'd be very intentional. But after a while you start to love those people. After a while, you find yourself bound to those people. When they're hurting, you're hurting. When they're experiencing something tragic, you take it personally. You start to experience that tragedy. It's almost like you're kind of bound to these people and it's not something that kind of you fell into. You committed to that. You chose that that's the kind of relationship that you have. And what I found over the course of years is that the more I served, the more the feelings grew into that service. The more I committed to love somebody, the more my feelings grew into my love for that person. And so after a while, my wife and I, we would take vacations. After a while, we would take a day to just kind of, hey, we have a day off today, right? But when we have dinner... Before, you had dinner exclusive apart from people at Metro because you want to take your minds off of Metro. You want to take your mind off of people at church. After a while, after a few years, and it didn't take that long, after just a short while when you took a break, the people you ended up having dinner with were people that you normally would see if you were, when you were obligated initially when you first met them and you obligated yourself to them. And that's what happens. The feelings, what happened? The feelings grew into your commitment. Now, these people are my friends. And the reason why that is the case is because you have been loving these people long before you actually liked these people. You had committed to these people long before you actually felt feelings of love for these people. The more you loved them, they became lovely to you. Lovelier to you. You have greater compassion for them. You understand them better. You want to invest in them more. Now, you may not marry. You may not have married a person that you currently like all the time today. That's a reality. A lot of times that's going to happen. But whoever you marry, if you have a skewed view of what love is, if love is mainly about feelings, you're going to feel absolutely lost when your feelings change or when your feelings conflict with each other you're going to want to walk. That's what's going to happen. If love is mainly about feelings, you're going to feel lost at times in that relationship. If marriage is a covenant, even if your feelings are strong, relationships with great potential will not work without the commitment first, without the focus and the discipline. Now, when you both choose to invest in one another, when you both choose to give to one another everything, you become more loving, you become more tender, you become more cherishing, more nourishing. You know why? Because to take care of them is to take care of yourself. Their health is just as important as your health. Their nurturing, their growth is just as important as your nurturing and your growth. You see what happens? You're going to listen to them more. You're going to serve them more. That's going to get you through every drive time, every drive time in your relationship. And over time, even the drive times start to dissipate. That's what's going to happen. You're reversing any brokenness in your relationship. The more you serve the person, the more you choose to, to obligate yourself, not say, oh, man, this is an obligation, but the more you choose to bind yourself to that person so that nothing will ever take you, bring you two apart. It's going to get you through every dry time, and eventually even the dry times start to dissipate. That's what it means for us. That's what these relationships mean. That's what a covenant means for us in a relationship. Now, the third thing is, then what is it, how does it shape you? What are the implications of marriage? One, love is an action first. Love is a verb first. The essence of love is not an adjective. The essence of love is not a noun. The essence of love is not a feeling. The modern definition, says, uh, of, the modern definition of love says you are passive. You kinda, it kind of happened. You kind of jumped into it. You kind of fell into it. Look at verse 22. It's printed in your bulletins. Wives, submit to your husbands. Does that sound like an adjective to you? Does that sound like a noun to you? Husbands, love your wives, verse 26. Does that sound like a feeling to you? It's an action. It's a commitment. Verse 26, you are to cleanse each other. Verse 27, you are to present your spouse as radiant. Verse 28 and 29, you are to feed each other. You are to care for each other as if it is your own body. Does that sound like a feeling to you? It's an action. When the Bible says, love your wives, love your husbands, it's the same word that's used when Jesus says, love your enemies. Do you understand? If love is a feeling, how can you love your enemy? You can't. Not if it's a feeling. When the Bible says, love your enemy, Jesus is saying, you have to be willing to get hurt at times. You have to be willing to get hit and absorb it. Pay for it yourself, not have to pay it back with something that's going to hurt them back, you see? It means sparing them pain, the same pain that you have experienced. Real love is resilient. Real love is kind. Real love is intentional. Real love means you're going to take a beating and yet it's inescapable. Real love means... Well, real love is never passive. Real love means I'm just going to get beat up. By the way, I don't mean physically beat up. I want to clarify. I do not mean physically beat up. I'm talking at times you're just going to feel beat up. If you're honest... Most people today will define love in accordance with their own terms, what they want, what they think they need. Godly love is not like that because godly love doesn't feed emotional cravings. Real love never measures what you're going to get out of it, but more so what you can give. When two people live like that, it's a beautiful relationship. When two friends live like that, beautiful friendship. When two, doesn't mean that you don't argue, doesn't mean that you don't fight, you're just clarifying what you value. Right? When you give and serve and submit to one another in any relationship, beautiful relationship. Only beauty. That's all you see. When two people come together and bind that legally, that becomes a beautiful relationship. Modern love says, well i'm not getting what i want and so what i'm going to do now is i got to do something to find it somewhere else i need i have needs i have cravings i have desires i need to satisfy these things and so what happens is on the uh, inside the home you end up withholding the other person you end up withholding what you can provide for the other person's needs because they're not providing for your needs there's a hardness of heart that starts to settle in because you're not satisfied you don't want to satisfy the other person. See, when you have children, you don't think that way. We never do that to our children. You'd be very cruel to do that to your children. When you have a baby, um, the baby what does the baby do? The baby is going to spit up all the time. Baby is going to bite your finger at times. Baby is going to rely on you for everything, right? What do you get out of that? You get nothing. You get nothing out of that. All you do is serve. Just gonna serve and give tirelessly, right? You're gonna be relentless with that love. But the more you serve that baby, the more you love that baby. You realize this baby that you met, that you've only known for like a month, your heart is now just bound up in that love. You know why? Because for nine months, almost 10 months, you've been carrying that baby. And so that relationship of feeding and nurturing and caring for that baby, you've, you've already been in the mentality, right? There are certain things you're not going to eat because it's going to be harmful for that baby. There are certain things you're not going to drink because it's harmful for that baby. In fact, what you're going to do is, before you even have the baby, you're going to stop certain things. There are certain things about your life you're going to constrain and restrain and refrain from. That's what you're going to do. Your heart is already bound up in that commitment of love right? When that baby does you wrong, bites your fingers, spits up, cries at night when you're just exhausted, you don't say, you know what, I'm tired of you. I don't get what anything from you. You're not even thankful because he doesn't know how to thank you, right? You, know, you don't sit there and say, well, you know, you're a thankless, you're a little thankless. you know, how could you have come from me? You're so th- unthankful, right? You don't do that. I'm going to replace you. You never say that. You know this is the long game. You know. It's going to come for a long time. And you know what? It doesn't, it doesn't get better when they get older. Parents, you know this. You, you have to know this. If not, this is going to be a shocking reality for you. So brace yourselves. From the age of 12 to about 23, your baby is going to be a jerk. Right? They're going to annoy you. They're going to argue with you because now they can talk. And they, they kind of have some reasoning capacity. So they're going to be a jerk. They're going to be jerks. Right? Are you going to love them less? You're going to hurt more. You're going to be broken more. Oh, there are going to be days when you're broken. You know it. You know that's going to happen. You're going to love them more. When they get to 23 and older, they're going to make some life decisions that you just absolutely do not agree with. Are you going to love them less? No, you're going to love them more. Your heart is just so bound up in them. You're going to love them more, right? You're gonna to wanna to serve them more, be there for them more. Maybe some of them are gonna end up in jail, God forbid, but maybe some of them will end up in jail. Are you gonna love them less because of that? No, you're gonna hurt because they hurt. It's almost like you are in jail. You're gonna love them more. You may even love them more than if they didn't go to jail, than if they didn't make bad decisions. That's what happens. But when your spouse acts like a jerk, Instantly, you want to give less. And the less you serve them, the less you love them. And the less you love them, the less that you give them. Marriage is very unlike parenting. Marriage is very unlike parenting. Marriage is covenantal. And the reason why it's unlike parenting is because, in a way, your child is of the same molecules as you. Right? They came from you. It's organic. Your children are organic products of you in many ways. Even adopted children, right? Although adoption is very, very similar because there's a covenantal agreement and you're choosing to love. That's why God always speaks of adoption to his children, to his church, right? But think about this. A child is a part of you from day one. You're going to nurture that child at a very early stage in their lives. So even if your DNA, physically, biologically, is not the same, that emotional and spiritual DNA is not your spouse. Your spouse isn't like that. Your spouse is like two different atoms, hydrogen and oxygen. You know how hydrogen and oxygen come together? They have to collide. When they collide, they don't become more hydrogen or more oxygen. They become a whole different thing a different molecule altogether. But it takes energy. If you know anything about chemistry, can you tell us a chem major in college, it takes energy, a lot of energy to stay together. A lot of energy will hold those molecules together, those chemicals together. That means that the days in which you will honor God most by loving your spouse, the way Jesus loved the church are the days when you don't feel warm towards them, when you don't feel love for them, that's real love at work. That's how Jesus loved his church. That's how Jesus loved us. That's when you are surrendering to the power of Jesus in you, when you've exhausted all of your earthly capacity, all of your physical and emotional capacity, and when you act out of love for Jesus. Remember, verse 21 undergirds this entire passage. Submit to one another out of reverence for your spouse? No. Paul knows there are going to be days when you don't respect your spouse. Paul knows there are going to be days when you don't feel love for your spouse. Verse 21 says, submit to one another. Friends, dating partners, married couples, friends, friends. The Bible says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And when you act out of love for Christ, respect for Christ, knowledge of Christ and what He's done for you, His love poured out for you, your feelings for that person will grow and mature. When you act out of your commitment, the feelings will come in. Your heart will be bound in. It's what you call investment. Very simply put, right, if some of you, at a young age, you started the savings account. That savings account is like a piggy bank, literally like a piggy bank. You're putting in a quarter at a time. Later on, that savings account grows. You put it into a bank. Now you're throwing in maybe 50 bucks a time, at a time. After a while, you are starting to put in hundreds of dollars at a time. Pretty soon, you're putting in thousands of dollars at a time. What are you doing? You're pouring in your investment. After a while, you don't even want to touch it. You don't want to take a dime out of it. You want to just keep growing. You're nurturing that investment. Do you know how careful we are in our world today with physical, monetary, financial commitments in our lives? We are so meticulous down to the penny. We have spreadsheets governing over where we're spending our money, budgets that we're committed to observing and realizing. And yet, how much investment do you, have you made in your relationships today? How much of an investment, not what you get out, but how much investment have you put in to your relationships today? A verbal promise is not enough. Marriage saying, I'm sealing it with blood. If I break it, may I be torn apart. That's what you're saying. Those are the implications. Where do you get the power to live this way? In Genesis chapter 15, God meets with Abraham. If you don't know who Abraham is, you can go to the first book of the Bible. Abraham is one of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament. And when God encounters Abraham, there he establishes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 one of the most important covenants in the Bible. There he defines the way that he will relate to Abraham and his people for the rest of time. Abraham asked God a very honest question. I'm looking at these promises that you've made to me. And I'm looking at myself. And I'm wondering, how are you going to live up? How do I know that you're going to live up to your promises? And how do I know that I'm going to live up to my promises? How do I know that you're good for it? And how do I know I'm going to be good for it? is your word enough, is what Abraham is essentially asking God. Tremendous boldness. But it was a very serious question. What does God do? God says, Abraham, I'm kind of paraphrasing everything that's happening in Genesis 15. He says, God tells Abraham, he says, Abraham, I want you to take the halves of these animals, and I want you to cut them in half. And Abraham doesn't say, like, why? Because Abraham was a businessman. Abraham knows what's going on. They're making a contract. So Abraham meticulously cuts these animals and lays them by the side of a road. And there, as he's falling into his sleep, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, the presence of God, because God always comes in fire, many times in the Bible, God represents himself in a fire. A smoking fire pot and a blazing torch blazes through those halves. It's an amazing thing. Nothing like it. Nothing that I've seen in the Old Testament like it. Essentially what God is saying, Abraham, I am vowing to make good on my promises, even if it costs me my life. I vow to make this promise good. I will be faithful to you no matter what. God tells Abraham, if I do not, may I be split apart. May I cease to exist. You know what the more remarkable thing is? Abraham, never walks through the pieces. Abraham never walks through. Why? Because God knew Abraham is a sinner, that even the man he loves so deeply and intimately will fail him, and he does. Actually, over and over, Abraham fails God. God knows Abraham will fail. And so think about what God is saying. Even if you fail, Abraham even if you break your vow, even if you break your promise, I will always be faithful to you. Jeremiah 31.3, you read it in your word of encouragement. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with what? My feelings? I've drawn you with my promises? I've drawn you with my love, my loving kindness. That word is the word hesed in the Hebrew. It's an unfailing love, a love that only God has ever demonstrated for his people in the Old Testament. And centuries later, there is Jesus. On the night he was betrayed. On the night he was betrayed, he's eating with his disciples. In ancient times, to eat with somebody in the night is a sign of deep intimacy Because of the way meals were prepared, the amount of time it takes to prepare a meal, what it costs to to prepare a meal like that. What's Jesus doing? Because Judas was there. You know who Judas is? Judas is the man that would betray Jesus moments later. On the night he was betrayed, Judas is there. And here's Jesus feeding Judas a piece of bread. A lot of people think that, oh, that's Jesus' way of showing the disciples who the person was. But the thing is, that couldn't have been the case because afterwards they didn't know who it was. They didn't know. If they knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus, knowing who they were, they would have jumped on him and they would have killed him. Jesus was feeding the very man who would betray him. Jesus was giving the man strength to go and betray him. Get your arms wrapped around that. Why? Because they had spent time together. There was investment there. And the more you invest in somebody, you love them. Jesus was feeding Judas. Knowing he would be betrayed. Always committed. Look at Jesus. He's constantly thinking about other people. On the cross, Jesus is dying. How committed was he? He was nailed to the cross. There's no getting out. He's stuck. He's not walking away. And still, do you know what he was doing on the cross? He's looking at his mother. And he says, Mom... I want you to take care of John, who's my friend. There's your son. John, you're like one of my closest friends. I want you to take care of my mother, who is now, I want you to take him in as your mother. Always thinking for other people. He tells the criminal next to him, Today, you will be with me in paradise. He's praying to the Father, forgive them. they know know not what they do. On the cross, Jesus Christ is thirsting. He's bleeding. He's sweating. Unfulfilled. Broken. Hurt. And yet, he's constantly thinking about what? What kept him going? What was his joy? Isaiah 53 says that he would be satisfied at the thought of many people being saved i'm paraphrasing it but that's that's basically what he's saying that my servant would be satisfied at the thought of people being saved you know what he was fantasizing about on the cross let's think about let's start with talking about what we fantasize about we fantasize when we fantasize about our spouse we think about this you know beautiful handsome wealthy well put together person right That's what we all have in our minds. What was Jesus fantasizing about? He was thinking about his bride. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was satisfied by the rescue of his bride. That's what he was fantasizing about. That if I just hold on, my bride will be safe. I would have saved her. I would have rescued her. rescuing you was so important it was worth sacrificing and losing his own life and so on the cross Jesus cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me and what he was saying is now I'm suffering the ultimate alienation The ultimate isolation, the ultimate loneliness. I am totally alone. There's not a single friend that I have right now. They've all abandoned me. There's not a single person here. They're all hurling, they're mocking me, hurling insults at me, spitting at me, throwing things at me, and you have turned your face away from me. Totally isolated, totally alienated. And so the corrosion has set in, and my life is falling apart. I'm being torn asunder. I'm being torn apart and so he was ripped apart on the cross. You see him just drenched in blood. Blood everywhere, dribbling down that cross. The wrath of God pouring out on Jesus for our sins. And he did that knowing that we would fail, but so that we could be holy and blameless. He paid the price for our sins so that we could be a radiant church. Jesus loved us not because we were lovable. He loved us so that we would become lovely to God. And that's what makes him so beautiful. That's what makes him so lovely. We don't worship him just because he's king, although he is. We don't worship him just because he sustains and governs and creates us, even though he does and he does and he does. We love to worship him because of his beauty, because of what he's done for us. And Paul says, when you think about Christ, that's what I want you to think about, as you submit to one another and love one another. That's the power for forgiveness over and over and over again. A lot of broken relationships in a church, in any church, that's the power for forgiveness. That's the power for forgiveness in a marriage. That's the power for commitment. When you see that Jesus Christ for, had forsaken his fulfillment, his wealth, his riches, everything that he was entitled to, and yet his love was a commitment, his love was a surrender, his love was a sacrifice for you, there the gospel is the only way that you could truly give yourself to another person because you've experienced an ultimate love that sacrifices for you. And when that becomes personal to you, to the degree that it becomes personal to you, you can love other people in the same way. You can love your spouse, not in a selfish way. You can love your children, not in a selfish way. Children are called to love their parents, not in a selfish way, you see. You're becoming an image bearer of Christ. Because you have new life in him. Friends, will you do that? Practice that. A lot of hard relationships in the church. A lot of broken marriages in any community. Will you commit, without waiting for the other person, will you commit to loving and serving that person? They will become lovelier to you. It will become easier to love because the feelings will be there. Will you do that? Let's pray.